Good morning, church family. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. That's on page 467 in the blue Bibles that are in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take this Bible home as our gift to you. Okay, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword we're told in the book of Hebrews, Lord. It, it cuts deeply. And so, Lord, we, uh, we delight in your word this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word is filled. It's, it's compacted with promises, Lord, that are just waiting to be discovered, waiting to be understood. And Lord, the, the, when the light comes on and we understood that all of your promises are yes and amen in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, it delights our hearts. It thrills our spirits. And so, Lord, we pray that today this would be the discovery that we, your people, would make. That we, in the pages of an Old Testament book, often neglected, we would see the face of Jesus. We would hear the story of Jesus. We would rest and nestle ourselves in the promise of Jesus. So we thank you for that, Lord. God, we turn our attention fully, steadfastly, reverently toward your word this morning to hear what you have to say to us. And we thank you for this. Lord, we ask this morning for a special, uh, God, just a, a refining of me, Lord God, as, as the one who will be speaking your word, Lord. Though I am frail and sinful and weak, Lord God, that, that in your providence you have chosen for me to share this morning. And so, Lord, I do not take that lightly and I ask for your help. God, I ask for your special empowering to do what... Otherwise, I would be completely incapable of doing. Lord, I pray for my audience this morning. I pray that you would speak beyond the words that come out of my mouth and that you would touch them deeply, Lord God, and that you would transform them from one level of glory to another into the image of Christ. And I ask all of this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have, for 11 weeks, we've been exploring the books of the minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. As we told you at the beginning, we kind of jumped over the book of Jonah because we did a, a fairly extensive series on the book of Jonah last year. If you want to listen to that, you can go to our podcast page on the website and find that last year and listen to it. 
Uh, but we have explored all other 11 books of the, Old Te- of, the, of the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament in this last series, and this is it. We have come to the end of the highway here, where this is the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the last book of the Minor Prophets. And when we look at Malachi, its place, its position that it occupies as the final book of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, feels providential. Because its emphasis, the emphasis of the book, centers on a radical shift, uh, some sort of dynamic change that's going to take place in the nature of God's covenant relationship to his people. Now, to bring you up to where we are, as we have for all the other 10 books that we've discussed, um, to bring up to where we are historically, about a hundred years have passed since the people of Judah, who were in exile in Babylon for 70 years, about a hundred years have passed since they've returned. And there, not a lot has changed from what I told you in Haggai and Zechariah. Um, th- they're under continued foreign rule. And this foreign rule makes the nation's former sovereignty that they enjoyed under kings like David and Solomon and several others, it makes their former sovereignty a matter of deep disappointment. When they think about who they were and who they are now, there's no way to not be discouraged. For them, things have changed and they've changed dynamically. They've experienced repeated severe droughts that that a couple of the other books, Haggai and Zechariah in particular, referenced. These droughts have resulted in pitiful harvests and the people both physically and spiritually are hungry. And because of this, because of this hunger, they are grumbling against God in their disillusionment. That's that's basically forms the structure of the book of, of Malachi, a people who are grumbling and a God who responds. All of their current religious practices, everything that they're doing that still has some shadow of obedience to the law, it's now all half-hearted at best. The priests themselves fail to offer sacrifices as prescribed by the law, and their teaching is marred by partiality. What that means is they tell the rich what they want to hear for good offerings, and they neglect the poor altogether. Things are a mess. And, and the, the failure in, on behalf of the priesthood results in the people beginning to experience rampant moral decay. They're falling apart. They walk in unbelief regarding God's promises. And they've hardened their hearts toward the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they begin to marry pagan women outside the covenant, which was completely forbidden by the law. And, and the reason it was forbidden and, and what the, the result of it is now here in Malachi is that they're corrupting the spiritual heritage of the nation in a long-term generational sense. They're divorcing, on another hand in marriage, they're divorcing the Jewish wives they've had since their youth. And they're doing so in order to align themselves politically with the nations around them through marriage. They've given up all hope that there's any hope in God. And so what they're trying to do is look to all of the nations, all of the powers, all of the idols, all of the gods around them to try to make some connection that will, uh, that will fix the, the problems that they're experiencing right now. And Malachi shows up on the scene and he paints a picture of a day when God will return. 
the return to Israel. We're not talking about return like we're looking for the return of Christ or the return of God. They're, he, they're talking in a more localized, specific sense. There's a day, Malachi is saying, when God will return, he's going to restore justice, he's going to restore righteousness, and he will leave no doubt among his people that he is preeminent. That's the whole basis of the book of Malachi. So the way it's structured is God, as I said, through Malachi, answers questions that the discouraged Jews are asking about him. And and the questions that they're asking, they're not honest inquiries. What they are, are that they're sarcastic, offended statements to the tune of, well, where is God anyway? Does he even still exist? Things you hear people in our culture ask. The most blessed culture on the face of the earth. And people are like, well, where is God? How do I believe in God? You know, is he just some kind of fairy tale up there? And these are the kinds of questions they're asking. These questions, as they're reported in Malachi, may not be verbatim that all the people are saying, but what they do is they're representative. They're, they're a real a summation, a, representat- a representation of the heart attitude of the people of the time in the land. And so God, in the book of Malachi, answers each question. And in his answer, he reminds the people of his covenant faithfulness, of his worthiness, of his promises. And he reminds them that the state they are in is not because he has been unfaithful, but rather because they have been unfaithful. The question and answers begin in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 1. And um, we're going to begin in verse 2 after Malachi's introduction. And this is how the Lord begins this last book of the Old Testament. I have loved you, says the Lord. Could there be a greater message that God could give to any of his people at any time in all of human history than to open with an address that says to them, I have loved you. It is the longing of of the people of God, not of all the world, most of the world hates God, but it's the longing of the people of, of God to hear him say to us, I have loved you. Remember in John, 1 John chapter 3 when John just reels with this, with this joy and he says, See what manner of love the, that God has bestowed upon us. We want to hear this message. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Do you see what's happening at the very basis, the foundation of the covenant, which is God's love for his people, the people are now calling that into question. You say that you've loved us, but how? They're saying, prove it, God. How have you loved us? So God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God consistently and has consistently demonstrated love for the descendants of Jacob ever since he rescued them from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years prior. And yet the Jews asked their voices tainted with sarcasm, how have you loved us? And they aren't asking God to recount the story of his love for them. They're questioning, in fact, whether he has ever loved them at all. 
They're blinded by current circumstances. Can anybody in this room testify that, that current circumstances can blind us to the love of God? Have you ever been in a situation so difficult, so dark, a journey, as David put it, through the valley of the shadow of death, that if you were honest, you said, God, where are you? With this situation, how have you loved me, O God? This is where the people are at. They're so blinded by their current circumstances that they can't see God's love for them. So God tells them how, that it was through no merit, no worthiness, no virtue of their own, that he chose to love them and made a covenant with them to be their God. That's what that, that idea of Jacob... They are the descendants of Jacob, have I loved, and Esau, have I hated. By comparison, Jacob's brother Esau, the firstborn of Isaac in the Bible, the firstborn always gets the blessing, but in this case, Esau was the firstborn, and he was rejected. And now, even in their contemporary times, God has pursued Esau to bring him to nothing. What I mean by that is he's pursued the nation that sprang from Esau, which was Edom. And why has God done this? What is it? What is the principle that's at work here? It's this. It is because of God's sovereign choice, his election of Jacob's descendants. That's why. God's love has continued to Jacob's heirs until Malachi's day. From the day he brought them out of Egypt till Malachi's day. And even after all that they've sinned and all the punishment they've endured, God loves them. And yet, he has been at war. And he even uses the word, I have hated Esau. You can grab your best biblical interpretation tools, any book that you can buy in any theological library, and you cannot diminish through any translational element the, 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 the strength and the power of that word hated. What God means is that he hated Esau. That may be something for you guys to wrestle with, but that's what he says. He's been at war with, with the, the generations of Esau through Edom for, for, for all their generations. But God is saying, my love for you, Jacob, descendants of Jacob, will continue to be granted throughout eternity to those who are of the faith of Abraham. And soon, he says, proof of his great love will extend far beyond the borders of their oppressed country and every eye will see it. Now, this, this verse is interesting. This Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated verse. Paul refers to this passage in Romans to display God's predestinating love for believers. And he combines it with a quote from Exodus thirty three nineteen, where God reveals his name. He says in uh, Romans nine fifteen, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And what I want you to hear, church, is to, I want you to just ponder for just this moment what love the Father has given to us in Christ. We are no better than Edom. We're no better than Esau. But we have chosen Christ, but we've only chosen him because he first loved and he first chose us to enjoy his covenantal love. And that's powerful message of the gospel that you are here, if you are a believer in Christ, it was because God chose you, not because you chose God. You did choose God, 
But you only chose him because he chose you first. The problem in Malachi hasn't been God's love for his people. That's why he starts there. He says, you know I've loved you. But rather it's been the people's love, it's been the, his, the, the, his people's love and reverence for their God who's been ever so faithful has been diminished. It's been gone. Listen to what he says. Look again at Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 1. Go to verse 6. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, here comes a sarcastic question again, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So Malachi has an underlying theme in his book of fathers and sons. It comes up three or four times which is interesting because I didn't plan that when I was teaching on Father's Day. God says that he has been denied the basic honor that a son owes his father. Throughout the Old Testament, you've got to understand that God has called Israel, the nation of Israel, his son. When in, in the, one of the other books of the Old Testament, he says, out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt, I have called my son, referring to Israel. He calls Israel his son, but even... If they were, if they reject this idea of the fatherhood of God and they only want to see him as a master, they haven't even given him the fearful respect that a slave should give a master. And the way this is evident is that the priests are bringing substandard offerings to the altar. They're offering them half-heartedly. The law demanded it over and over and over again that only unblemished offerings be offered in sacrifice. But what the people are doing in Malachi's day is they're keeping the very best for themselves and they bring the lame and the wounded to God's altar to offer to him. Now, what's happening when they do this? In doing this, this is what's happening. They're denigrating God's worth. They're saying that God is not deserving of the best. And it's worse than that. They, they're doing this blatantly. It's not because they don't have better offerings to bring. But what they're doing is they're sinning with no fear of God. Because they imagine in their unbelief that he can't see what they're doing. And the priests, they're no better than the people bringing these offerings. They're just going through the motions of religious observance. But Jesus says in John chapter 4 that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you think it was any different back then? No, of course not. See, God points out that they would never offer such terrible gifts to the foreign governor who's ruling them. They would never do it. And so he's pointing out to them that they have higher regard for political powers than they do for their creator, their king, their judge. They have no fear of God. Skip over to chapter 2. Let's look at verse 2 of chapter 2. God speaking to the priests, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Now, if that seems harsh, 
I want you to know it's based in the rules of God's covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, we mentioned it last week or a couple weeks ago. Deuteronomy 28 lays out curses that the people could expect if they forsake the, the, the covenant that God had made with them. So this is what cursing the blessings means in, in, in verse 2. It means two things in particular. First, it means it's a promise of continued judgment. You know, they've been experiencing these droughts and, and oppression from foreign armies. It's a promise of continued judgment on their physical and material well-being. Let me read it to you right from Deuteronomy 28. This is God promise to people who forsake his covenant, who he had made a covenant with. The only people on the face of the earth at that time he had made a covenant with. This is what he says. He says, but if you do not obey the vo- this verse 15 beginning, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in your basket and in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall you be in the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The people had broken the covenant of God. And so what, what is happening under the terms of the covenant, they're now under a series of, of curses. I read you the introduction to that passage. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, you'll find that that, that, uh, that, that chapter lists curses that go on and on and on and on and, and grow in intensity for people that forsake the covenant. So that's the first thing. Their physical well-being, their material well-being will be, ble- will be cursed because of their breaking the covenant. But second, it's a curse pronounced that, that uh, it's a curse on the blessing that is pronounced by the corrupt priesthood. See, back in Numbers, the priesthood was tasked with speaking God's promise of peace over the people. That God wanted a covenant with them, that he wanted to make peace with them. And, and now he speaks this, this uh, and, and they were to given words to speak a blessing over the people. Their words, the Bible says, would put the power of the name of Yahweh upon the people. These are those words. We read them here often. Number 622 says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put the name, uh, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now God is saying, I'm going to curse these blessings. You're going to say, you're going to go through your religious ceremony of speaking this blessing of the people and I'm not going to honor it, God is saying. Heartless religion doesn't impress God. He wants pure and fervent hearts that love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, and all their strength. Jesus says this is the first and greatest commandment. Religion, churchianity, does not do anything to get God's attention. Let's skip down to verse 8, Malachi 2.8. But you, this is speaking to the priest, real important to know that, but you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. 
He's saying, hey, priest, you're not doing what's right. And, what, and because of that, you have caused other people to fall as well. The failure of the priest has not re, uh, resulted in greater devotion in the people, but greater apostasy. They're literally abandoning God. The wickedness is seen in two specific sins that I mentioned earlier. The Jewish men are taking pagan wives who are seducing them to worship foreign gods and idols. And additionally, they're divorcing the wives of their youth, which subverts God's pro- purpose. God has had a purpose to have faithful covenant families with godly offspring. And the failure of the priests has put the entire faith community in jeopardy. Think about this. You are a member of God's covenant community. You marry outside of that covenant. You begin to have offspring who worship more like mama than they do like daddy. And sooner or later, after a few generations, the entire community of God is gone. The failure of the priests has put the entire faith community in jeopardy. If God does not intervene, his people will be completely wiped from the earth. And again here, God returns to the theme of fathers. He envisions himself as Israel's father. He wants godly offspring for himself, yet he is denied this by the marital sins of his covenant people. God also charges the people with selfishness and greed in the way they bring their offerings before the Lord. They're withholding the tithes that are prescribed by the law for the benefit and the ministry of this house. And again, God tells the people, once again, that they're under a curse for neglecting the wor- his work and not honoring him both first and best. So here we are in a pretty sticky situation in the book of Malachi. The Old Testament's over, and this is where we've landed. The priesthood is corrupted. It doesn't rightly intercede for the people or instruct them properly in God's law. As a result, the people themselves have turned away from God, and they are pursuing worldliness. They've become altogether corrupt, and so there is a crisis And God must intervene. And then we come to our text. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. So God tells the people, look, this is a mess. So I'm going to give you a sign. You watch for my herald. Before a king would conquer a nation in ancient times, he would send a messenger to announce what was coming. And the purpose of that was the people could prepare themselves either to fight or to surrender. And though these people thought God had been unfaithful, they thought God had completely disregarded them, he is letting them know, guys, I am watching. They could repent and be saved, or they could continue to rebel and most certainly be destroyed. So a couple hundred years pass after Malachi, and then this happens. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And these were his words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What that means is, Heaven is showing up. Your time is out. It's time to respond to God by repentance. 
For this is he, John is he, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And Mark also quotes from the passage we just read in Malachi to identify John the Baptist. So the herald has arrived. He's preached a strong message and he's baptized people for the repentance of sins. And, and the beauty of it is many people received him and yet others, primarily the heads of the religious estate, totally rejected him. And we're told later in Malachi, in chapter 4, we're told that he is going to come, this messenger is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Another sign for the people to watch for. Well, when Jesus made... Uh, his descent down the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, he directly makes this connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. The fullness of John's uh, purpose, though, what John was here for was not just to call people to repentance, but the fullness of his purpose was fulfilled the day he looked at Jesus Christ and he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What he was, he was fulfilling his mission in Malachi. He was saying, he was, he was pointing to the one. He was the messenger that was coming before the one. And now the one is here. And he says, there he is. I fulfilled my purpose. There he is. It's interesting in the book of John, after John makes that statement, John's ministry begins to diminish. And when they asked him about this, they said, John, aren't you worried about this? You know, you were, you were the hot guy on the, on the block. You were the most popular, uh, you know, podcast preacher around for the, uh, there for a little while. And John says this. He says, knowing he's fulfilled his biblical prophetic purpose, he says, I must decrease and yet he must increase. Malachi 3.1 After this messenger comes, Malachi speaks of another messenger. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, a different messenger, in whom you delight will be behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. When the people heard John, the herald, they were beginning to look for the messenger, the Messiah, to show up in the temple. And... Shortly before John begins to testify, Jesus is taken by a young couple named Mary and Joseph to be dedicated as a little baby where? In the temple. Later, when he was 12 years old, he questioned the doctors of the law. Where? Right there in the temple. He grew up spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted of the devil after his baptism. And he enters the temple and he drives out the money changers with a whip. In the last week of his life, he taught there and he confronted religious authorities within its walls. The God whom they sought came suddenly to the temple and no one was expecting it. Almost no one except a couple of old prophets named Simeon and Anna who saw him and said, this is the one. My eyes have seen his salvation. 
So Malachi elevates this messenger beyond just another prophet, just another one in a long series of prophets. He, he, did you notice what he called him? He says, he is the Lord whom you seek. This messenger would be God himself. God himself was coming to the temple and we know that he did so in Christ Jesus. But Malachi doesn't, persuade, doesn't portray him as one coming to bless all the people in spite of their the sinfulness. See, they were, they were all grumpy at God. They were grumbling because they were expecting the Messiah to come and just make everything good, just run out all the foreign enemies and, and bless them. But that is not the kind of ministry that Malachi describes here. Listen to what he says. You can turn over to Malachi chapter 3 and look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? This is not going to be what you expect, people. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The coming of Christ will be the one that a corrupt priesthood and a wayward people can never endure. He is not coming to pat them on the the head and rescue them from, from their hard times. He is coming to set things straight. He will come like a blazing fire to refine the dross out of his people. He will come like the harshest soap that removes the most stubborn of stains. He's called a refiner and a purifier of silver. And Hebrews says, at the end of chapter 12, it says, Our God is a consuming fire. God is not a fire that just warms you up a little bit or burns you. If you step into the fire of God's holiness, you will be consumed. You will be eaten alive. You will be melted down to nothing. But in this consumer, consuming fire, he's called a refining fire. Precious metals are placed in the fire not to damage the metal, but to purify it. It's through the flames that all that is impure is removed so that what emerges can be fashioned into something beautiful and something useful. The result of Christ's refining fire will be that superficial worshipers will be no more. They'll be replaced by those who offer their offerings in righteousness and, and and, and dedicate their offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Without Jesus' blood purifying us and sanctifying us, nothing we could ever offer God is of any value. Your morality? Give me a break. Your money? I don't think so. Your religious observance? God doesn't need it. Nothing is of any value without the sanctifying and purifying power of Jesus' blood. All that is within us. Paul said, I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. All of it needs to be burned out of us by His holiness and purged from us by His sufferings on the cross for us. Otherwise, we are vain and useless priests, absolutely worthless in His service. See, a picture 
is being painted by Malachi of a new way of doing things, a new way that is far superior than that that was offered through the Mosaic law or the Levitical priesthood. And this, as I said in my summation of Zechariah last week, this has been God's intention all along. It was in this sense that he gave us the law to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Paul said, I wouldn't have even known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. I wouldn't know what it meant to covet unless the law said, do not covet. And when the law said, do not covet, Paul says, I died. I was nailed. I was, I was convicted. I was sentenced when he heard the law. And so because of that, because that is the purpose of the law, all our attempts at obedience and religious duty earn us nothing. They have earned us nothing. But what we needed, we've, we've missed. It was right there in front of us and we've missed it. What we've needed was a Savior to purify us, to refine us, to consume us in his whole, the fire of His holiness and make us something that we weren't. It's only then that Malachi 3, 4 will be fulfilled. Then, then when the messenger comes, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. The full intention of God will be fulfilled when the messenger comes and refines us. Later in chapter 3, I love this. God says that he will write a book of remembrance for those who have feared the Lord and those who have esteemed his name. And listen to what he says in verse 17 of chapter 3. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them. Here we go again. As a man spares his son who serves him. Earlier, God had said, if, if I'm the father and you're the son, where's my honor? So God sent his son who honored the father fully. He said, if I'm the master and you're the servant or the slave, where is my fear? And God sent his servant, according to the book of Isaiah, who walked, Isaiah tells us, in the fear of the Lord. What we would not do, Jesus did. And once again, we return to a theme of a father longing for elect sons. He wants godly offsprings to the offspring to delight in. The way he achieves this is no longer through the law, but through the grace purchased by Jesus on the cross. God gave the one and only begotten son so that he could have many sons and daughters to be his treasured possession from every single corner of the earth. Listen to these last words. The last two verses of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, this again referring to John the Baptist, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The great and awesome day of the Lord isn't something that happens in the end times. It's the day when Jesus shows up. And listen, and this messenger will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. There it is again. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Again, God summarizes 
the message of the book by pointing to a change that needs to happen in relationship of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. And nowhere is this more true than in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. God has sent Jesus so that our hearts will be returned to the Father. And let me tell you something. Without Jesus, it is impossible for you to turn to the Father. I've already said it. Observance of the law won't do it. Your strict code of morality won't do it. Your, uh, your religious good deeds won't do it. Your ignoring God in atheism or agnosticism won't do it. You still will be far from the Father. But Jesus has come. And the Bible says that this one, who is the only begotten of the Son, it says in Hebrews, that he was not ashamed to call us his brothers. Because he's leading us into a shared fatherhood with his father. We cannot come to the father if we don't come through Christ Jesus. Peter said in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Embracing Jesus means embracing life. And rejecting him means, in the words of Malachi, a decree of utter destruction. Would you stand with me? We're going to receive the blessing of the Lord's table this morning. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, just come forward. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, stay in your seat. Um, And we would love to talk to you about that afterwards. If you're a believer, come to the table and receive these elements and then go back to your seat and we'll take them together. If there's one thing that we, as God's people, often, and I am definitely included in this number, often fail to understand it is the holiness of God God's holiness is his is is his essential attribute that everything else that God is his love his omniscience his omnipotence all of it flows from his holiness and so the very thought that any of us and this is the message of Malachi that any of us could approach God With anything we bring, it's just a defective offering. It's just something wounded, something lame, something blind, something torn by wild beasts. That's all we have to offer the Lord. Because His holiness demands perfection. And so most of us begin our religious experience by trying to make up for our lack of, of, of religious, you know, uh, offering. We have no, nothing to bring, and so we try to bring perfection. We try to discipline ourselves and whip ourselves into shape and bring perfection. But the only thing that's going to rescue any of us, the only thing that's going to make us acceptable to God, the only thing that is going to give us truly to the Father is purification. 
And purification doesn't come through your blood, sweat, and tears. Purification comes through his blood, his sweat, his tears. And that's how we become united to the Father. And it is this very thing that we celebrate, that we consecrate every week when we take communion together, that we say, God, we come here and we remind ourselves in the taking of these simple elements, we remind ourselves that we are not enough. We don't bring enough. We don't have enough. We, God, are so far from the mark that we could never find our way back. And yet you have paid the price. You have refined us in the greatest of all fires, in the fire of your blood. And now, because of no virtue merit of our own, we come out of that fire pure. We come out of that fire ready to be prepared for a beautiful, to be a beautiful vessel that is useful to our master. And this is, if you've lost sight of what you're celebrating at this table, this is it. If you're taking this, I'm assuming that you are a believer. I hope you are. It won't mean anything to you if you're not. But if you're a believer, no matter where you are in life right now, you can say this, this piece of something that represents the body, this cup of something that represents the blood screams that I am, I am going to come out of this fire and I'm going to be pure before my Lord. Not because of something I'm doing, but because of something he has already done. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do is to ignore me for a minute, to bow your heads and in your own words and audibly to bless those around you, I would like for you to just spend time not making promises and vows to God, but just thanking him for what he has already done for you. Would you just do that this morning? Just thank him. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we were hopeless without you. Jesus, we had no way to find our way into your grace, into your presence behind the veil to bring our needs and our concerns to you, to enjoy fellowship with you, we had nothing. Every offering we brought was unacceptable. It was, it was a disgrace. It was an insult to you. So Jesus, you did what we never could have imagined. You became the sacrifice. Father, you offered the sacrifice. The one that was without blemish, without defect, and the one that would put away sins from us forever. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so, Lord, as we partake of these elements, we thank you for that. We confess our many sins, and we ask you to continue your refining, purifying, sanctifying work to let us, all that is earthly, all that is fleshly in us, to be consumed so that we come out gold. 
And we thank you for this. We know that you're at work within us by your spirit. And we give you praise. Let our minds return often to this thought of you as the perfect sacrifice. And we ask all of this in the precious, holy name of Jesus. Amen. And so now understanding that we are living under the blessing of God and not his curse, I want to return to the Levitical blessing for you. If you would place your hands in receiving position. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. What good news. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.